this one? Which is better for you? That sounds great. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, we pray this morning as we turn to your word that we would receive from you. We would receive the gift in this season of peace in its fullest form in its weight and in its breath, breadth, that we would experience peace at the very core of our being. Not because we're comfortable, not because all of life's circumstances are going just right and according to plan, but we, because we have a secure hope founded and purchased in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this today knowing when we ask for more of you, you do not turn away, but you welcome us in. And so we listen and we look to your word today in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. I feel a little awkward for having to do this, but some weeks ago, I missed a baby announcement, and I thought it would be right to announce this baby today partly because why I feel both a joy in announcing this baby and a sorrow in having missed it is, this is a relative of mine. (laughs) I mean, if you're going to mess up, mess up with family, right? So let me introduce to you Zion Jeremiah Trawick. He was born Friday, October the 29th, 7 pounds, 15 ounces, 21 inches long, and all of the family is doing well. There's something precious about a baby announcement, isn't there? There's something wonderful about seeing new life coming into the world. There's something wonderful about celebrating with a family as they are welcoming new life and realizing this is messing you up forever. (laughs) Something wonderful about that, right? Exciting. And then there's the, the gender reveals, as long as you don't, like, burn down half of a national forest in California or whatever. But, like, then there's those moments, right? And then there's the moments when you get the graduation announcements and just those milestones that you get to see families walk through. There's just something exciting and wonderful and precious about all of those moments in life, isn't there? It's right that we celebrate them. Isaiah chapter 9 is a baby announcement for us as a church. It's a baby announcement across the heavens. It's a baby announcement. It's a gender reveal. It's a life's purpose announcement. Now, here's something that I know as a parent. I know not to try to announce my kid's life purpose. Because I don't know that. There are things that I've wondered about for them over the years, like when I tell my boys when we're around the dinner table, it's, it's a rarer moment these days given schedules with a, uh, one in middle school getting ready to head into high school, a senior in high school, and, a, and one in college that's out of the house. 
But there's those moments when around the table when I, I remind our two oldest who are our boys, be nice to your sister, you're going to work for her one day. We know those moments as a family, right? But, but I know better than to try to announce their life's purpose. I have asked her recently if she might make a frightening attorney. Right? Like, okay, that was a joke, but you guys took it real seriously. <laughs> 13, frightening attorney. Anyway, so I know better than to try to announce Ella's life's purpose because that's a journey of discovery together. I know better than to try to say what Alec is going to be good at, even as he's a senior in high school and and trying to figure out what the next steps in college are. I know better than to try to say for Caleb, this is exactly what your life is going to look like, even as he's a junior in college this year. Sometimes I think it might be easier if I just did that, but not necessarily better for them. But God announces this baby's purpose in this passage today. He announces this baby's purpose with four names that are given in the midst of the passage. And so let's make sure that we understand. We make the connection to what is happening here in this passage and realize how different it is than what we might try to accomplish. See, as a parent, I'm reminded that, yes, it's my responsibility to disciple my children in in the ways that they should go and pray with them and pray for them fervently in what it is that God's calling them to and the spouses that they'll have one day. Those are the moments that drive me to my knees. But God doesn't send his son to experience that same type of discipleship. He sends his son to be the discipler. He sends his son to be the one that has one purpose in this life. And it's going to be his life. It's going to be his death. It's going to be the power of his resurrection. And I'm reminded yet again, even in the midst of kind of seeing the fun display of baby announcement and baby announcement, that God's ways are not my ways. His ways are higher than my ways. And we're all so glad that that's true, aren't we? See, the people of God have oft wrestled with his ways not being their ways misunderstandings or taking bits and pieces of what they see and what their own maybe expectations in the midst of it are. But we're going to see uniquely in our passage today how God's ways are not our ways. But I want to start with this. Let's just kind of broadly think about this. This Advent season, and when we're talking about Advent, we're talking about the arrival or the coming of something. This Advent season, you can receive peace through Christ's coming. You can receive peace in what you're experiencing right now, here today, where you're seated, what it is that you're carrying into this room from your workplace, from your family experience, from your campus. I know for many students, this is heading into finals week for those who are in college. I know in two weeks, that's going to be happening for a lot of our high school students. You can experience the peace of God even in the midst of the chaos of final weeks. You can experience the peace of God even as a family as you are trying to figure out Christmas plans with your extended family. You can experience the peace of God. You can receive that as a gift because of Christ's coming. And so today, I just want to take a moment to kind of slow down from the chaos that we experience in this season and look at 
why this season exists in the first place. As a reminder for our souls to be rooted in Jesus Christ. And so our passage today starts where we're going to start with the announcement of his coming. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. So our our passage begins with this proclamation to us and for us. There is this child, this son, and he is given. And it is a reminder to us that Christ's coming is a gift of grace. Christ's coming is a gift to us. It's a gift that we simply and easily receive in our hearts through believing, through faith. Now, we'll return to the government being on his shoulders in a few moments. But for now, I just want to set a little bit of a context for why this might have been a little bit jarring for the people that were hearing this. See, the people of Israel are hearing this passage. They are once again in this kind of rebellious cycle. But they're awakened from this rebellious cycle to like, weren't we supposed to have a Savior? Like, it seems like everything is breaking loose in the world against us as a people. So am I remembering correctly there was a prophecy about a Savior? Anybody want to talk about that right now? They are in the midst of political upheaval and turmoil, and it kind of awakens them out of their rebellious state to look for a Savior, to look for one who is there for them. And what is this political turmoil? Where It is a threat from their neighboring Assyrians who were ruthless in battle ruthless in their conquest of other people. So the people hearing this good news were in this place of desperation. They're in this place of desperation, crying out to God for a Savior. And what do they hear? For unto us a child is born. So that'll be great in about 20 years, right? I'm reminded of Psalm 40 where it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined his ear to me and heard my cry. For unto us a child is born. So our our Savior is coming, but not in the way that we might expect. Not in the way that might answer this specific need that I'm looking at in my circumstances right now. But this Savior is coming and He is going to have specific characteristics to meet our deepest need. And I want us to understand this. This is not a surface level Savior. This is not a circumstantial Savior. This is a Savior here to minister to the deepest parts of us. Minister to our soul for eternity. Not for this moment right here. We see this because he says, His name shall be called, our passage goes on to say. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of peace. So who will the son be? What was his life's purpose at this baby announcement? Who will the son who is given to us, this gift that is coming our direction, who will he be? What will he be like? What kind of kingdom will he reign over? Like I want to hear those things because the Assyrians are knocking at the door. And what are the words that they hear? Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of peace. I wonder what part they picked up on in the midst of this. I wonder if they kind of skimmed the prophecy when Isaiah delivered it to them. Mighty God, I heard what I needed here. I wonder how often we do the same with Scripture. You see, he's a wonderful counselor to us. 
I want to be careful here because I don't want to disparage those in our midst who either have the gift of counseling or are involved even vocationally in counseling. But I would say as one who does pastoral counseling, I am not a perfect counselor. You can sign up to see me on our website, MetroLife.org. But I'll just warn you up front, I'm not a perfect counselor. I don't know any counselor that is. And it kind of bothers all of us, right? We want to go to counselors to fix something. We want to go to counselors to set something right. But there is one who is the wonderful counselor. Now, why do we call him wonderful? It's not just because he's got eons of experience at this. It's because he has the power to back up what he promises. He's a wonderful counselor because he is a supernatural wonder of a counselor. That's actually what this language means. He is a supernatural counselor whose promises will ring true for eternity. He is a wonderful counselor. I enjoy talking with my counseling friends or even when I am sorting through something and I'm talking with a counselor about different things that are going on in my life. Different things that we're, we're facing even here in the church. I'm not talking about you, don't worry about it, it's not like that. Sometimes I'm just trying to figure out, like, I, I think I'm seeing something here. Are you seeing the same things? And we just compare notes. I've had wonderful conversations recently with a new family here in the church whose name is Thomas. And, and I had an opportunity just to meet with him and ask questions about, like, this is what I'm seeing kind of happening in pulpits across America. We had a wonderful discussion about that. But I, I don't mean this in bad. I don't look to him as a wonderful counselor. See, what I want to do is I want to say, what is this counselor sharing with me? And then how does that align and affirm what I see in God's word? Because that's the ultimate authority in life. Only Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He's one who's going to have this divine wisdom, unlike the foolish wisdom of the world. His counsel is perfect. It's supernatural. It's wonderful. Unlike any counsel here on earth. He's a wonderful counselor to us. He's a mighty God. He will be mighty in battle on behalf of Israel. He protects his people as a warrior. I wonder if this is the part they picked up on. That they kind of said, oh, that's what we need. And they kind of ignored three quarters of this prophecy. See, it implies... That he's going to be divine and human, but he's going to have the strength of God. That's what's being prophesied here about this coming Savior. I think this is where we get tripped up at times. Where the nation of Israel can at times get tripped up. Because we're looking for salvation from earthly kingdoms. Earthly political rules and reigns. And their focus, much like ours, can be on the here and now. See, this wasn't unique to the nation of Israel in those times. Jesus' own disciples would expose that they misunderstood this text. John the Baptist and his disciples would expose that they misunderstood this text. So let us not do the same. Let us understand this text rightly today. A few weeks ago, Seth Greer in our Genesis series preached about being mindful of the temptation to become overly triumphant in the world today in the way that we pray, in the way that we experience the gifts of prophecy, in the way that we pray and cry out for healing. I'm, I'm grateful that he spoke so plainly to that and clearly for us as a church because pastorally, I would want to kind of reaffirm that and caution us as a church 
of the temptation to triumphalism. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean making claims about the promises of God for today. Yes, let us pray bold prayers filled with faith in the one that we are praying to. Let us also trust the one that we are praying to. Let us seek to obey the one that we are praying to. Let's take care in our understanding and making claims on our mighty God. Let us us see that he is indeed mighty and he is indeed not us. That his ways are not our ways. See, what this does in prayer is it helps keep us from assuming on him, but it does keep us dependent on him and looking to him. And that's how we should pray, church. That's how it is that we should be praying. So please hear me. I just want to say it again. Pray faith-filled, bold prayers. And then trust God with that. We don't want to make claims on his promises. He's also the everlasting father. This might be interpreted in a few different ways. The eternal father or father of eternity. The author of eternal life to the redeemed. Now I want this to to not become confusing, but there are some differences in the Old Testament text in Hebrew and the New Testament text in the Greek so this, this phrase shouldn't be confused with the New Testament name for God as our Father because today what it means is this benevolent protector of his people. And we're beginning to realize that there is a covenantal language that's being needed into this text of those who have this special relationship with God. In our case today, it's the nation of Israel. It's God's chosen people. In the New Testament, we often see this being spoken over those he has chosen through election, those who he has adopted to be his very own. And so it's wonderful that we can call God our Father, and it's wonderful that we can run to him in times of trouble. We see David talking about this in the Psalms. He is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. God is that Father, but he is also this benevolent protector of his people. He is a fatherly protector of his people. It's a godly king who will protect his people, not like a dictator ruling over them, but as a father who would protect his children. But have you ever wondered this about this passage? How could God be both the father and the son that's being promised? Let's dive into the Trinity for Christmas. No, I'm not going to do that. See, I think it's right if we have those types of questions. This passage isn't saying He is God the Father because the the persons of the Trinity are distinct. But the Son that is coming has here the title of Father. They are one in essence. They are three in persons. R.C. Sproul says it this way. Though the formula is mysterious and even paradoxical, it is in no way contradictory. Thanks, R.C. That is a great line that we need to remember sometimes. It's not contradictory. I think it's helpful for us today to think of it like this. The Son is the everlasting Father in this way. It's referring to the Messiah's relationship to time. Not his relationship to the other persons of the Trinity. And so what this, what this affirms is actually Jesus' divinity, his deity, and his eternality. That he is the eternal Savior. But God is our Father. He is our tender and faithful and wise guardian and provider for His people. Isn't it amazing just to kind of 
bask in the truths that are contained in the names of God? Isn't it wonderful to look at what might be a very familiar passage to you and just have it wash over us again as new life's circumstances have entered into the fray of our minds and to hear the word minister to us. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. In the Old Testament, this would be understood as shalom's fullest meaning. It's a a ruler who will bring God's promised peace to mankind. His government brings peace. And what this anticipates is not only the first coming of Jesus Christ, but it anticipates the glorious second coming of Christ in in the resurrection And his kingdom, when he brings peace to the earth that he created, when we are all raptured up with him. He brings peace to the earth that he created in that moment. It looks forward to that with great anticipation. But once again, we're kind of faced with this language barrier in the languages that are contained within Scripture. And so we have the the Hebrew in the original text in the Old Testament. I am not a Hebrew scholar. Uh, We have the New Testament with Greek So in the Old Testament, it would be shalom, and in the New Testament, it would be arene and agape. So there's actually this kind of precision to the Greek language that actually kind of diminishes a bit of the definition in the Greek. And so in the Greek, oftentimes you will see both of these phrases used together in a sentence to to expand on or expound on to understand this is shalom's fullest meaning. Now, why is that important? Well, because without it, we're we're one of two things. We have this great relationship without the truth of His power and His holiness in the New Testament, or we have this power and holiness but no relationship. At least that's how it can seem at times, isn't it? And yet, God's Word is, there's a continuity to it. There's a continuity to the gospel. There's a continuity to the message that is being presented here. So when we talk about shalom in its fullest meaning, what we're talking about is not just the absence of conflict and peace. We're talking about relational restoration. Relational restoration with God. So there can be shalom with God, and there's relational restoration with our fellow man. There can be shalom with one another. And this is where you see in the, Old Te- in the New Testament, excuse me, that they have to use that word agape. We're going to look at that a bit more next Sunday when we're talking about the advent of love. There's peace, there's relational restoration with God and with fellow man. There is wholeness. This is one that we can oftentimes kind of neglect. There's wholeness, which basically looks like this. Bringing all of these complex pieces together and having them work together in harmony. Doesn't that sound like what we often need in life? Life can get complicated. And what we're offered here today is shalom, the prince of peace. Bringing all of these complex pieces together in harmony, it's also the presence of one who is greater. This Jesus that is to be born to us. We'll look a bit more at Irene and Agape next Sunday. But as we're thinking about 
the Prince of Peace, and it relates to shalom in its fullest meaning. A Christmas carol came to mind. I know that's shocking. It was actually the Christmas carol of Silent Night. We know the words. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, or at least we know these words, right? Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. See, I want to be careful not to receive my theology from Christmas songs on the radio, but I want to acknowledge when they get it right. I think it's right that this song sings of a heavenly peace. Because let's think about it. Other than the, maybe the crest sitting at your, on your mantle at home or a nativity set that you drive by, I doubt that it was like this calm and quiet. You ever been in a room with a baby? Heavenly peace is what he's the prince of. Heavenly peace. I had an experience with this song. I know that may sound like a weird way to say it, but Stephanie and I, over the years, have sung professionally. She, she continues to do so. And we were singing. It was, it was an unusual gig. We were singing at a retirement home. And I, I don't mean anything by that. Please don't misunderstand. But this was a retirement home that had several different wings to it based on the level of care that their patients needed. And we were invited in to be the entertainment for their Christmas party. It was a unique experience. We were kind of going table to table. And we came to a table <clears throat> where there, were, there was a, an older lady there who you could tell fairly quickly that all, all of her mental faculties were not there. And her, her daughter and some grandchildren were there having dinner. And you could tell, like, you can just feel those moments, right, where the grandkids are like, I do not want to be here. And, and so we could sense this just walking up to the table. And so we just asked a simple question, would she have had a favorite Christmas carol? And they said, oh, she was the organist at her church for 30 some odd years. She loves the song, Silent Night. I, I think I've mentioned this before. I don't, I don't say it braggadociously. I, I've been on stage since I was five. I have a lot of stage experience. I've never broken on stage. Let me take that back. I've never not been able to recover from breaking on stage. Breaking often is that it's laughter. I couldn't stop crying singing this song with her. And I say singing this song with her because all of her faculties came back in that moment. Every bit of them. And we hear these stories, but to experience is a whole other thing. Because what I was hearing her sing from was heavenly peace. I couldn't help. I've no doubt she's there now. I've no doubt she's singing the praises of his name. I might doubt that I can recover from breaking like this right now. She was singing out of a peace that was so deeply rooted in her, nothing could steal it. Not the effects of the fall on her body, not the effects of age and time, not the grandkids that didn't want to be there, 
not the daughter that was trying to bridge the awkward moments. There was nothing between her and her Jesus. May that be true for all of us, church. May we all have an assurance of our Prince of Peace, the mighty God, our everlasting Counselor, our everlasting Father. That we can know this heavenly peace. I don't mean this in a bad way. This is not retirement home theology. This is what we're called to walk in the blessing and the good of every day of our lives. But do we? Do we sleep in heavenly peace? Are we married in heavenly peace? Are we single in heavenly peace? Are we parenting in heavenly peace? It's a gift. Did somebody just say no? That sounded like a child. Y'all, thank you. That was helpful for my soul. Again, you can sign up to see me at metrolife.org. We can have some pastoral counseling. Oh my goodness, what a moment. Thank you, Lord. When we consider the arrival of peace through Christ in the manger... As our passage shows us today, we have to understand that the world that he entered into was chaotic, but he enters our chaos so we can enter his eternal heavenly peace. Because we are invited to live with him forever, but the way that we are invited to live with him forever is through surrender and not through conquest. Our passage goes on today to say, In verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And here's why I want to return to what we saw earlier in verse 6, where the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now our passage is beginning to use a little bit more explicit, a little bit more clear covenantal language. And it tells us that the government, the one that's on his shoulder, will be one of peace that is going to increase without end. It's, it references the covenants with David and the line that he is in. But I think that Sinclair Ferguson summarizes this for us well. We have the quote for the screens for you. In the whole of the gospel story, I think it's right to say that there was only one thing ever said to be on the Savior's shoulders. But he carried his cross outside of Jerusalem to reign from the tree. That's where power is to be found. Power to set me free from my deepest bondage. Oh, if we could have men and women from many countries in the world, they could speak to us about the political bondage in which they have lived as Christ's free men and women. You see, you can live in political freedom and be the greatest prisoner in all the world. Imprisoned to your sin and to yourself. And this is where we begin to understand the type of peace that we receive through Jesus. Increasing and eternal peace. Shalom. Wholeness, completeness without end. Isaiah is looking forward to the day when power will be displayed by peace on this earth. He's also looking forward to the 53rd chapter of this book. And, and we don't have an exact timeline on the, the time between these being written. There are f- uh, very few kind of timing cues to the book of Isaiah. 
But God knew as he is speaking through him as a prophet. Isaiah is already looking forward to the 53rd chapter of this book, where the servant that is coming is described to us yet again, not in conquest, but through suffering surrender on my behalf and on your behalf. Let's consider those words together from Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Church, remember, we are invited to live with him forever through surrender, not through conquest. It has nothing to do with what you can accomplish in this world. It has nothing to do with what you can amass in your home or your bank account. It has nothing to do with a list of accomplishments. It has everything to do with what he accomplished for us. We are invited to live with him through surrender, not conquest. Because the cross is an expression of the zeal of the Lord securing our peace. The last line of our passage today says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Will do what? Will bring this salvation. Will introduce us to this Mighty God, this wonderful counselor, this Prince of Peace, this everlasting Father. Have you ever wondered what the Lord puts his efforts into? Why, what gets him out of bed in the morning? What his why is? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We're going to look at this a little bit more next week as well because zealous and jealous as it comes to the character of God actually work quite in company with one another especially when it comes to love, the love of God. So, yes, this is a shameless plug. Be back next week. If we think back to the Assyrian threat that the people of God were facing in today's text, we learn this about the conquest that nation sought and what it was that made their leaders. Consider this relief from a throne room around that time. A warrior king. Let me tell you what was inscribed just below this. It said this, I am royal, I am lordly, I am mighty. This is a man. This is an Assyrian king. I am honored, I am exalted, I am glorified, I am powerful. It's starting to sound like an SNL sketch, right? I am powerful, I am brilliant, I am lion brave. Not just brave, you're lion brave. I am manly, I am supreme, I am noble. That's what the people of Israel were up against. Men who thought and had to act in that way. He's an idiot. He's a fool. Because let me tell you what the Apostle Paul says about our Savior. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, he made himself nothing. Contrast what's happening here in the midst of this. Christ surrendered himself for our peace that we might receive peace through surrender to his lordship over our lives. 
the one who made himself nothing. And outside of the Lord's zeal, there will be no peace for us in this life. I like how Alistair Begg said it. He said it this way. The zeal of the Lord Almighty, defined in terms of his covenant love, is displayed in his unfolding plan and is displayed in the company of his people. The purpose of God from all eternity is to put together a people that are his very own. That's you and that's me. And if you haven't submitted to his lordship in your life, that can be you today. You can receive this peace as the greatest, most costly gift that you will receive in this Christmas season. Why do I say that it's a costly gift? It's not because there's some payment plan. No, Jesus paid it all. Through his life, through his death, and then through his glorious resurrection on our behalf, that we may be able to enter into this peace. John 14, 27, where Jesus is beginning to prepare his disciples for his departure. He's beginning to prepare them for life without him. He says this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Think about our passage today. Ray Orland Jr. calls this the pure gospel because it expects and it asks nothing from us. This is all about God. Look in here for what it is that you're supposed to do. You won't find it. I'm the one who's telling you that you simply receive. Why do I say receive? Because it's a gift. Why do I say it's a gift? Because the first words of today's passage are unto us. It's a gift. That is offered to us in this season. I want to share a little bit more of a personal story. And it's actually one that I've been experiencing this week. To be clear, this is all still kind of working out in my head and my heart. Even this morning as I'm preaching. I'm colliding with truths I've been wrestling in for weeks. And yet I'm experiencing the angst and the fruit of them at the same time. I just want to be honest about that. Things in life aren't perfect. For me either. So oftentimes, when I'm walking Duncan the Wonder Pup, that's me and Jesus' time. Some days I need four miles with Jesus. Some days I get two. But every day this last week, my mind and my heart has been weighed down through some different things. Is it okay if I bring you in a little bit? I've been weighed down by the season that Stephanie and I are in right now. Our schedules are busy, but not at the same time. You ever experienced that? So, and it's, it's tension. It's tension because, like, we're, birth, we're, we're both pretty high-octane people. And we like to move. And we're, and we're figuring that out in this season. Everything's okay. Our marriage is fine. I'm not confessing something. I'm just acknowledging that we face that tension, and it's been weighing on me. It's been weighing on me because I'm not sure that I see this resolving until about eight weeks from now. So every day is a new opportunity for me to love her well or love me, which never goes well. Now you know how to pray for me. Now you know how to pray for her. 
It's weighing on my mind. What else is weighing on my mind? There are some things that we are meeting about that we are getting ready for the new year here at the church. So I'll just confess, sometimes I have a hard time leaving the office at the office. I know that many of us experience that. I'm no different in that. Sometimes we have trouble leaving work at work, and so these are things that are weighing on my mind. We have an elders meeting this Tuesday night. I'm not anxious about the things that we're covering. They're exciting. I can't wait to share them with you after the first of the year. Shameless plug, come back next year. But they weigh. There's work to be done. So Duncan gets a walk. I get time with Jesus. And I'm just praying through this. I'm just kind of pouring out my heart before the Lord. And I was reminded a few days ago of one of my favorite verses to pray through for my, for my family, for myself, for others. If you've been in pastoral counseling with me, you've probably heard this. So let me just practice it right now on you. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This was the hard part for me a little bit. It's not because I was tired from walking. It's because I was weary in my mind and in my heart and in my soul. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. I've been saying some stuff to God, letting him know some requests lately. Maybe you have had the same experience, but this is the part that revived my soul. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, this peace that you and I receive in Jesus Christ, this this peace that is available to you today as a gift, does more than just give us eternal hope for peace. It is an active peace in our lives. It is an active peace because it is actively guarding our hearts, that is our our motivations, our drive. It is guarding our minds, our meditations, our musing. And that peace in Jesus Christ in real time serves the people of God. And it can serve you today. It's serving me right now. So today, remember this. You can receive peace through Christ, invited to live with him forever through surrender and not conquest. As we prepare our hearts today for communion, as a way to close out our message and our service, I just want to remind us that we're not just at peace with God to be kept at a distance. We're at peace with God to experience the welcoming of His presence. We're presented by our Savior with great joy. We're presented with great joy by the one who laid down His life for us. And now we can receive this gift of remembrance knowing it will provide the peace that we seek. Consider these words from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. We have it for the screens for you. He is the image of the invisible God. Talking about Jesus. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. 
and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So just before we, just before his sacrifice on our behalf, Jesus gave us another gift. 